everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. This lecture will be The Origins of the First World War, Part 9, Great Britain. And this lecture will be brought to you by the letter P. So in this series, which I've been working on over the past several months, this particular lecture will will be the last one on a European power, at least for the time being. Perhaps later I might go back to Italy, a country that became involved in the second year of the war, but was not part of the initial outbreak. So Great Britain was the last European state to be involved in the so-called July Crisis in the middle of 1914 that followed from the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and it was the last European nation to enter into the war in that first year. Later, I expect I will discuss Japan, which was another state that also became involved in the early stages of the war in 1914 and was the only one that was not in Europe. And after that, I expect I'll discuss military affairs, technological change, and diplomacy, and how they affected the events of July and August 1914. Now, although Britain was the last European state to join into this war in that first stage in 1914, it was also the largest imperial and naval power in the world. It was a crucial last domino to fall, and it gave a critical advantage to the Allies throughout the war. So what I want to do here is briefly discuss Great Britain in the Victorian era, basically the middle and later part of the 19th century, and how that set the stage and the conditions then for Britain's entry into the First World War. Now it happens that last year I discussed some of English dynastic history, a topic I've talked about several times, and I left off with James II and the so-called Glorious Revolution and the sort of Whig constitutional settlement that resulted from that revolution. So there's about 200 years from that point where I left off to the later Victorian age that I'm going to talk about now. And I can't go back and cover all of that history, of course, and most especially British social history is exceptionally rich. It's a topic I have studied some. My area is the 18th century. So much like with the French Revolution, when I talked last time about France, I'm going to have to just leave that aside maybe for another time because there's just too much there. And I'm going to skip ahead instead to Britain in the 19th century at the height of its economic, military, and diplomatic power. So in the Victorian age from at least the 1850s through the 1880s. Great Britain was the foremost world power. It was the first nation ever to industrialize on a mass scale by harnessing water power, which Britain has in abundance due to its wet climate and topography, and then shortly after, coal power, with easily accessible coal deposits available both in northern England and in Wales. The British state and industry also made use of a massive uprooted population, which had been displaced by the enclosure movement, rack renting, and the highland clearances in Scotland, and was able to draw on this population as a pool of cheap labor. On top of that, Britain had the most sophisticated system of banking and investment, 
in order to harness present wealth towards future projects. And together, this highly sophisticated industrial and financial economy powered Britain's fiscal military state, which was unrivaled in the world, the world's largest navy, with a changing mix of both sailing vessels and steamships, and the largest and most productive colonial empire on earth, the empire on which, quote, the sun never set. So Britain's global position hinged most of all on its ability to support an enormous naval fleet, by far the largest on earth, and which through the Victorian age was constantly advancing in order to remain larger and better equipped than any possible rivals, and to protect the sea lanes connecting the island of Britain with its far-flung colonial empire. This navy was quite popular and influential in British society, in part as a means of social advancement in what was otherwise a highly class-bound and class-stratified society. Early on in the 18th and early 19th centuries, this navy had depended upon the practice of impressment, or basically kidnapping and a forced conscription into the navy and the merchant marine. And this practice of impressment was never entirely abolished, but it was gradually phased out after 1815 and was no longer known by about 1900. Alongside this enormous navy, Great Britain had only a very small army, a relatively small home defensive force, and a small expeditionary force which could be quickly dispatched in order to react to attacks or unrest in the colonies overseas. And all in all, Britain was able to function as a major power at the same time that it was the only European state with no conscription. Now, as for this empire, Britain had at first had a, an overseas empire comprising mostly settler colonies, especially in North America. This empire was dramatically divided and weakened by the American Revolution. And even the New World colonies that Britain retained, such as those in the West Indies, languished in the 19th century. And so over time, Britain was able to replace this older, largely settler colonial empire with a newer empire of basically militarily and technologically dominated colonies based mainly in Africa and Asia, linked together by sailing ships and then steamships, and by a growing network of canals telegraphs, cables, and finally, railways. Now, to go back to domestic British society, it was, as I said, highly class stratified with powerful antagonisms between different economic and status groups. There was a powerful aristocracy that maintained a great deal of power through its ownership of land, its control of key institutions like the church and the House of Lords. Alongside them, also was the largest and most powerful middle class in Europe, which had a very strong political voice through the House of Commons, and lastly, a large industrial working class that generally lived in poverty, in tightly crowded slums, that was overwhelmingly disenfranchised and excluded from the political process, but which nonetheless became gradually more organized and self-assertive over the course of the Victorian era. So the tensions and conflicts between these different class groups sometimes broke out into protest or even in violence, such as notably in the Chartist movement in the 1830s, in which largely lower middle class and working class disenfranchised men marched for the right to vote and other political reforms, and in some instances were charged or fired upon by government forces. 
Nonetheless, in the Victorian age, after about 1840, these class tensions were increasingly channeled into parliamentarian political processes. There was a series of reform bills every decade or two, which gradually extended the franchise, such that by 1900, most men of the middle class and a significant number of working class male householders could vote and have some voice in parliament. The defining political force and ideas of the Victorian age came mainly from the middle class, whose power was organized and asserted first through the Whig Party in the early 19th century, and then later the successor that replaced it, the Liberal Party. And all in all, the Victorian age, at least in the later decades, can be seen as a liberal era, with widely accepted norms centering on domesticity, propriety, and private sentiment, which served to counterbalance what was seen as the upheaval and the dehumanizing effects of mass industrial society. And Victorianism altogether embodied in decorative art and literature, celebrated the lavish townhome, the domestic life of family and sentiment, and these values were captured most of all in the quintessential Victorian art form, the novel, and can even more specifically be seen as epitomized by Charles Dickens, who showed a combination of social realism, appeal to sympathy for the sufferings of the poor, while at the same time the implied solution was not revolution or state action, but rather charity, driven by empathy and sentiment. And it's largely charity works and public health projects organized through churches that attacked poverty and disease that was endemic among the working class with fairly minimal state involvement as opposed to in other new rising industrial societies like Germany. As for the politics of Victorian Britain, power was centered primarily in Parliament. The Queen Victoria served mainly as a figurehead, although she still did still assert some degree of influence in politics, mainly behind the scenes. But power was rooted most of all in Parliament and most particularly in the House of Commons, most prime ministers were drawn from the House of Commons, although a few also were based in seats in the House of Lords. The challenges for British leaders involved balancing and managing the complex class antagonisms in British society, and also in balancing and managing domestic affairs as against the empire. In the mid-19th century, there took shape a somewhat stable two-party system, with the Tory party, or Conservative party, representing traditional society, social deference and cohesion, and protectionism, high tariffs in order to maintain and support rural agricultural society, which was still widely understood as the bedrock of Britain. And the Tory party's opponents, first the Whig party and later the Liberals, represented democratization, middle-class reformism, and free trade which was understood to serve to unleash the power of British export industries and foreign trade. And politics in the Victorian age was by and large guided and directed by a series of powerful influential prime ministers. Firstly, Henry John Temple, Lord Palmerston, who was the dominant figure of British politics in the mid-1800s. Palmerston did the most to establish Victorian Britain's stance in the world, first and foremost as an imperial power with an economy based on trade, and also secondly as a power broker maintaining the balance of power in Europe. 
Palmerston opposed democratizing reforms such as extending the franchise, although he conceded to some limited reforms due to pressure in the House of Commons. But more importantly, Palmerston appealed to growing British nationalism and patriotic sentiment. He urged support for imperial expansion and industry, and he was fairly popular with the voting public. Palmerston had been born in London to an upper-class Irish family. So he belonged to a sort of traditional upper class of mainly Irish Protestants who were very influential and deeply tied in politics in Westminster. He entered Parliament initially as a Tory MP, but he switched over to the Whigs in 1830. And he became Foreign Secretary for a series of governments, and he was a strong and outspoken supporter of free trade, which he presented as good for industry and also for consumers at the expense of the farming sector, which would have to compete with imported foodstuffs, especially grain from the United States. Palmerston also assertively involved Britain in affairs in Europe. He surprised many Britons by selectively supporting nationalist movements on the continent if they served in some way British interests. He helped to secure independence for Belgium in 1830 and for Greece and he supported the Italian national unification movement against Austria. In 1848, he expressed sympathy for European revolutionaries and support for political prisoners. But he still maintained that the core principle of his policy was to maintain a, a balance of power and open markets for British trade. And he is famously quoted as saying, quote, Britain has no permanent allies, only permanent interests, end quote. After about 1850, Palmerston increasingly saw France and Russia as the main problems and threats to British interests, especially as possible competitors for control of India, Britain's largest and most lucrative colony. And partly because of this concern for control of India, Palmerston increasingly got involved in the so-called Eastern Question, the question of what would happen to the strategic points and territories of the Ottoman Empire in Eastern Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean as that empire declined. So British land and sea routes to Asia ran through the Ottoman Empire. And so the question repeatedly arose, what to do as this empire declined? And would Russia take advantage and interpose itself between Britain and Asia? In the 1850s, Britain entered into the Crimean War. And at first, it performed poorly, even as compared to its French and Ottoman allies. And so in 1855, the government resigned, and Palmerston for the first time took over as prime minister in the middle of the war. And in doing so, he was, he was 70 years old, and he was the oldest person ever to take office for the first time as prime minister. He was seen to get affairs back on track, reorganizing the war effort, and thereafter he made foreign matters, especially the so-called Eastern Question, central to British policy and politics for the next 40 years. And Palmerston served, as it happens, as the last Whig prime minister. His government fell amidst a series of problems and controversies in 1857 to 58. So firstly, in 1857, Palmerston pushed through the House a bill legalizing divorce in civil court. So prior to that time, one could not get divorced in Great Britain without the special permission of the church, which actually could only be granted through a private bill in Parliament. 
So basically, Parliament had to pass a law saying that you specifically were allowed to divorce your spouse. Well, Palmerston, for the first time, opened up the possibility of requesting and obtaining a divorce through ordinary civil courts. And it passed narrowly, but it was highly controversial, and he lost a good deal of support, including among his own Whig party. Secondly, Palmerston prosecuted the Second Opium War, which began when the Chinese commissioner in Canton seized a British pirate ship called the Arrow and supposedly insulted the British flag when impounding that ship. So in retaliation, British forces shelled the harbor, and this action was criticized by a number of dissidents in the House of Commons, including for one William Gladstone, a young conservative MP who was very moralistic and religious and spoke for the sensibilities of the middle class. And these critics brought forth a bill to restrain British action against China in the so-called Opium War, but it was soon withdrawn. And Palmerston condemned this bill, saying that it will, quote, abandon a large community of British subjects at the extreme end of the globe to a set of barbarians, a set of kidnapping, murdering, poisoning barbarians, end quote. So you can see Palmerston reacting with exceptional anger and horror at this disagreement over policy in China. Thirdly, there was an enormous uprising in India, which I'll mention again later, which the British East India Company had to crush at great cost. And the following year in 1858, the government transferred formal control over India from the East India Company to the crown directly. And this is the formal beginning of the so-called British Raj or British royal regime in India. Also in 1858, there was a major flap over the so-called Orsini Affair. In that year, an Italian revolutionary attempted to assassinate the French Emperor Napoleon III, and he used a British-made bomb, creating suspicion in France that Britain was somehow involved in this assassination attempt. And in order to defuse the situation, Palmerston tried to pass a so-called conspiracy to murder bill. But the opposition in the House of Commons saw this bill as a kind of admission of guilt. And the bill failed, and Palmerston soon after finally resigned. And thereafter, there was a period of several months of chaos with no governing majority in government. So in 1859, there was a reorganization where former Whigs, who left that party as it was collapsing after Palmerston's resignation, certain former Whigs who had supported Palmerston, joined together with middle-class conservatives like William Gladstone because they had an important point of agreement around the idea of free trade. And they held a meeting in a private home where they formally founded the Liberal Party. Now, it happens that shortly after, Palmerston went back into office as the first Liberal Prime Minister, and he served in that office from 1859 to 65. But in this second time in office as a liberal, he was a much weaker leader, and he had to govern along with certain young reformists, such as Lord Peel and William Gladstone. He died in 1865, and Gladstone took over as the leader of the liberals in 1867. And at this point, Palmerston's legacy was basically divided into two different parts. The liberal cause of free trade carried on, But social conservatism and also the commitment to involvement in Europe 
were taken up by the Conservative Party. And for about the next 40 years, there was a continuing close contest for power between two main parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, who were about evenly matched in terms of support and voice in Parliament. And the governing majority shifted back and forth repeatedly through those decades. The Liberals were led by Gladstone for most of this time, and he became Prime Minister four separate times. He's the only person ever to have had four non-consecutive terms in office as British Prime Minister. On the other side, the Conservatives were led first by Benjamin Disraeli until he retired due to poor health in 1880 and was replaced by Lord Salisbury, who then served as Prime Minister for most of the last two decades of the 19th century. So let's just talk briefly about each of these leaders, Gladstone, Disraeli, and Salisbury, and the impact that they had. So to begin with William Gladstone, he was born of a Scottish family in Liverpool. His father had been a merchant and a member of parliament. He was devoutly religious and moralistic. He first entered into parliament, like Palmerston, as a Tory. He served for many years in the colonial office and the board of trade. And he eventually broke away from the Tory party mainstream due to his support for free trade and his support for the Italian revolutionaries, and finally for his signature cause, which was civil service reform. So this was his major issue, the cause of basing the public hiring to government on a standard written exam rather than on what he considered to be nepotism and social elitism. Gladstone helped to bring Palmerston down from power in 1858 over this dispute over the Opium War. But nonetheless, the following year, he then joined Palmerston's new government when he came back into power, mainly because of their shared sympathy for Italy and Italian nationalism. He also helped to form this new Liberal Party, and he served in the Liberal cabinet in the 1860s. He was able to conclude a lucrative trade deal with France, lowering trade barriers with this traditional imperial rival. And he created a public post office bank, which made him highly popular. After Palmerston stepped down again in 1865, there was a period of uncertainty and volatility. And Benjamin Disraeli, the conservative leader, briefly served as PM for a few months in 1868. But then the Liberals won the elections that year, and so Gladstone took office as PM and was able to stay in that position for several years. In the early 1870s, Gladstone's cabinet was seen as highly capable, with the government being run very efficiently. But Gladstone made attempts at several types of reform, firstly reforms in Ireland, aimed at reducing the oppressive power of landlords over their tenants in Ireland. But these reforms were mostly blocked. He also attempted to intervene and mediate affairs in Europe, as Palmerston had done before him, such as by trying to broker a deal to make Alsace and Lorraine neutral between Germany and France. But these efforts also failed. The Liberals lost the elections in 1874, and Gladstone stepped down, and he was replaced by Benjamin Disraeli. So who was Benjamin Disraeli? Well, Disraeli is a very colorful figure who is remembered very vividly as a sort of icon of Victorian Britain. In terms of his sensibilities and personality, he was extremely different, almost the opposite of Gladstone. He came from a Sephardic Jewish family in England that had converted to Christianity when he was 12 years old. 
He was a writer, and he had had some degree of success, especially for the sort of dishy novel Vivian Grey. He was part of an artistic movement called Young England that took a romantic view of the English national character as embodied in traditional life in the countryside. He had a dramatic flair, a remarkable sense of humor, a wit, and was a good orator. He was also fairly popular with the public, despite being very conservative. And he was especially good at courting allies and supporters in high places. And there's a remarkable story about the contrast or comparison between Gladstone and Disraeli, where one of Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting at the royal court described having met and dealt with these different statesmen. And she said that she once spent a dinner sitting next to Mr. Gladstone and came away believing that he was the cleverest man in England. And then she spent a dinner seated next to Mr. Disraeli, and she said that she came away believing that she was the cleverest person in England. So Disraeli knew how to flatter and to court, and he got on smashingly with Queen Victoria. The two were almost peas in a pod, whereas the Queen basically detested William Gladstone. And in 1875, Disraeli paid perhaps the biggest possible compliment to Queen Victoria when he used his political capital in Parliament to pass a bill conferring the formal title of Empress of India upon the Queen against the objections of liberals and other dissenters. And this further weakened Disraeli's control over the House, but it elevated Victoria now to the point where she could go to formal diplomatic events next to people like the Kaiser of Germany and be treated as their equals because she too was an empress, not just a queen. And another interesting anecdote is that when a journalist, reportedly when a journalist asked Disraeli why he was able to manage the queen so much more effectively and get the sort of endorsements that he wanted from her, much more so than Gladstone, uh, Disraeli said that Mr. Gladstone approaches the queen as a department of government, whereas he approached her as a woman. Now, Disraeli happens to be important for this particular story about the origins of World War I because he was in office in the 1870s, and specifically in 1875, the time when a wave of rebellions broke out in the Ottoman provinces in the Balkans, starting firstly with Bosnia and then spreading eastward through Serbia to Bulgaria, where the Ottomans brutally suppressed the rebellion. And this led to a major test for Disraeli, because the Ottoman Empire, as we mentioned before, controlled the main strategic routes from Europe to Asia, and hence was critical to Britain's link to India, the so-called jewel in the crown. And this became a major consuming issue of Disraeli's relatively brief time in office. He was only prime minister for about seven years in total. And it opened up a critical issue for Gladstone and the liberals to capitalize on in order to undermine Disraeli and get back into office. Now, it happened that Disraeli stepped down anyway due to ill health in 1880, and he died just a few months later in 1881. And the liberals won the elections in that year, and Gladstone came back into power as prime minister. In 1881, Gladstone's government passed land reforms for Ireland, helping tenants to obtain titles to the lands that they occupied. And in 1884, they passed a Reform Act extending the vote to most small householders, especially in the countryside. Now, the issue that finally undid Gladstone, effectively, was the question of Irish home rule. So, all through the 19th century, Ireland and Great Britain 
were joined together in a so-called union as one single united kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, governed centrally from Westminster through Parliament with the consent of the monarch. Ireland was in no way treated as a separate or autonomous political entity. And Ireland did have representation in the parliament in Westminster, but it was relatively small relative to its population. And it was very limited in the sense that the voters were overwhelmingly Protestant, and they represented the interests of the Protestant middle and upper classes, and very little the Catholic majority. Now, in the elections of 1885, a parliament was elected where the liberals happened to control exactly half of the seats in the House of Commons. And so in order for the Liberal Party to be able to continue governing, they needed votes and effective support from the Irish MPs, who were a mixture of mostly Irish Protestants, many of whom wanted either total independence in some cases, or home rule, meaning the splitting of the British Parliament into one in Westminster and a separate Irish council in Dublin, which would be able to control internal affairs within Ireland. And so in order to secure the votes and support of these Irish MPs, Gladstone proclaimed his support for Irish home rule. And in 1886, he proposed a bill which failed. And as a result of this massive legislative failure and lack of support in the House, Gladstone stepped down. But even out of office, he continued speaking and campaigning for the cause of home rule. He later returned to office again briefly in the early 1890s, and he again championed a home rule bill. But the House of Lords rejected it. So at this time, the parliament still functioned like the American Congress. Any bill in order to be enacted had to be approved by both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But the Lords defeated this second home rule bill by the largest margin ever recorded for any bill in that house by a margin of 419 to 41. And so Gladstone again resigned, and this time he retired to scholarship and to campaigning against the Ottoman atrocities in Armenia. So rather than Gladstone, the prime minister for most of the later 1880s and the 1890s was Robert Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marcus of Salisbury. So Lord Salisbury was a high aristocrat, a direct descendant of Lord Burley, the sort of chief advisor and minister to Queen Elizabeth I. He served for years as the Secretary of State for India before becoming Conservative leader and Prime Minister. Salisbury had a very narrow majority, or sometimes no majority, in the House of Commons, but nonetheless he was able to retain office because the Liberals couldn't govern due to their acrimonious split over the question of home rule. In terms of his views on domestic affairs, Salisbury was a simple reactionary trying to restrain and minimize any move towards reform or social change. And he's quoted as saying, quote, Whatever happens will be for the worse, and therefore it is in our interest that as little should happen as possible, end quote. And he did make early on some initial small moves towards social welfare policies, such as building public council housing, but he later nixed and regretted them, and repudiated them as socialistic. 
And so by the end of the 19th century, one can see Salisbury's government as sort of the last and most sclerotic stage of Victorianism. Okay, so all of these different Victorian governments under all of these prime ministers, most prominently Palmerston, Gladstone, Disraeli, and Salisbury, all had to deal with pressing foreign and imperial issues. So Britain had expanded, as I said, to become the greatest, most extensive imperial power of that age, and just in terms of sheer land area of any age other than the Mongol Empire. And it was an enormous feat to manage and maintain this empire and to somehow make it remunerative rather than simply a burden. And their largest and most important colony, of course, was India. And India had been gradually infiltrated and taken over piece by piece by the East India Company, using strategic alliances, subterfuge, sabotage, and the sowing of conflict in order to make more and more regional states into protectorates or puppets of Britain, or eventually to simply absorb them as provinces. And the subcontinent had been mostly secured by about 1830. And the French, the Portuguese, and Persia to the west were really only minor threats. And Britain was clearly the dominant power throughout the subcontinent. But they did still have a significant vulnerable frontier in the northwest, which was highly mountainous and difficult to control. And historically, this area, sometimes called Hindu Kush, was the main pathway for invasions of India from Central Asia. So in the early 1800s, this area around Hindu Kush was in the territory of a small emirate or kingdom, which came to be called Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was internally unstable, with periodic regional and dynastic feuding. What was important from the British point of view was that it could potentially be infiltrated by Russia. So Russia had been gradually expanding southward through Central Asia through the 18th and early 19th centuries. And there was an increasing danger that the Russians might try to lay foundations in Central Asia for an invasion through Afghanistan into India. And in 1830, British and Russian officials began aggressively competing for control of trade routes and diplomatic relationships in Central Asia and Afghanistan, beginning a sort of barely concealed Cold War power struggle between Britain and Russia, which came to be called the Great Game. In 1838, a dynastic civil war broke out in Afghanistan, and the British intervened militarily to try to install their preferred claimant to the Afghan throne named Shah Shuja, and to reestablish control of Afghanistan in order to forestall any possible Russian advance. If it had been successful, it would have made Afghanistan into a kind of puppet state of Britain. But this invasion led to a long, bloody conflict with many British troops lost, including in sieges and long marches through the mountains. And the British had to give up and withdraw in 1842. And ultimately, they accepted their opponent's claim to the Afghan throne and had to coexist with an independent Afghan kingdom for about the next 15 years. Now, after those 15 years, the so-called Sepoy Mutiny, as the British called it, broke out in India. And in this uprising, Muslim and Hindu fighters, or so-called sepoys, in the employ of the British East India Company, allied together, rebelled and attacked the British colonies in India. 
and it took enormous expense to crush this uprising and to reimpose British control over the subcontinent. And as a result, Palmerston's government transferred control of India from the British East India Company, which now seemed to be outmoded and ill-equipped to actually govern this enormous country. They transferred it to the crown. In 1878 to 80, there was a second Afghanistan war. And this time, Britain was alarmed that the Afghan government in Kabul was making friendly overtures to Russia and had received their emissaries at the court. So the British governor of India sent a force to invade Afghanistan again, to overthrow the emir, and to replace him with a rival who would comply with British wishes and shut the Russians out. And this time they were successful, and Afghanistan became basically a puppet state of the British serving as a buffer against Russian advance. So after that point, Britain's control over India was basically beyond challenge. But at the same time, they were also managing repeated problems and oppositions in Africa. So Britain was very aggressive in the so-called scramble for Africa. And by the 1880s, they boasted that they had the Union Jack flying over British strongholds, quote, from Cairo to Cape Town, all the way from the northern coast to the southern tip of Africa. But this came with many problems and setbacks. For one, in Sudan, in the interior northeastern part of Africa. In that country, a revolutionary religious movement under a religious leader called the Mahdi took over control of the state in 1881, mobilized the country, and struck out against foreign powers all around their borders. In 1889, the Mahdi government of Sudan invaded northward into Egypt, which was then under British suzerainty, and they threatened to possibly take control of the Suez Canal. And the British had to push them back after a long and costly struggle, and finally defeated the Mehdi's supporters in 1898. With the fall of the Mehdi came a power vacuum. And so at that point, shortly after this defeat, both British and French colonial governments moved in expeditionary forces in order to try to establish corridors of control in Sudan. And as I mentioned last time in my lecture about France, the British forces moving southward and the French forces going eastward met and ran into each other at the town of Fashoda, leading to a tense standoff, after which ultimately the French backed down and basically allowed British domination of Sudan and hence a continuous British corridor running from Egypt down southward to Uganda and Kenya. In the same years, there were struggles over control of southern Africa and what's now South Africa. So Britain had controlled the Cape Colony in the area around Cape Town and the Cape of Good Hope since the early 1800s when they had taken it from the Dutch during the Napoleonic Wars. Now in later years, diamond deposits were discovered in the broader region of southern Africa around the Cape Colony. And this made the whole region highly valuable and the British colonial office became determined to secure the whole region and to make it into a British dominion, much like Canada had been made into an autonomous British dominion under the umbrella of the British Empire. But in order to do that, that would entail subduing and annexing the so-called Boer republics, the small independent republics in the inland part of southern Africa, 
that had been settled and founded by emigrants from the Cape Colony of mostly Dutch descent. And it also would mean subduing the powerful Zulu kingdom. So firstly, in 1879, the British attacked the Zulu. And at first, they were massively defeated by a Zulu counterattack at Isan Luana, one of the biggest, most catastrophic defeats ever faced by British forces abroad. And eventually, the British were able to push back with greater supplies of money and more advanced weapons. And they reduced the Zulu kingdom to a British protectorate with British control over their foreign policy, and then several years later annexed it outright as a British province. But nonetheless, this still left certain things unresolved. Most importantly, it still left the independent Boer republics further north, which in later years would turn out to have gold deposits as well as diamonds. So that sort of standoff between the growing British colony in South Africa and the Boer republics continued, but perhaps most importantly, and certainly most importantly for understanding the roots of the First World War, was the continuing struggle over the declining Ottoman Empire and the so-called Eastern Question. So as I mentioned briefly when I talked about Disraeli, as the Ottoman state weakened and lost territory in Europe, the question repeatedly arose of what would happen to the Eastern Mediterranean and whether Britain ought to be involved in somehow managing, stopping, or perhaps speeding the decline of the Ottoman Empire. And the main continuing problem that drew Britain into European affairs was that the Ottoman Empire contained important points of contact between Europe and Asia. At first, these included the Straits, the Dardanelles, and the Bosporus that runs through Constantinople. But then after 1869, even more importantly, this included the Suez Canal, which was the critical lifeline between Britain and India. It was completed in 1869, and already by 1875, 80% of the ships going through the canal were British. And Britain knew that it could not effectively defend India from new threats such as Russian encroachment by land or possible attack by steamship fleets at sea without the canal. The canal reduced the travel and communication time between Britain and India by weeks. And if that canal, if access to that canal was ever lost for whatever reason, India would basically be severed from Britain. Now, this canal had been built mainly by French engineers, and it was owned as a private project. It was owned 56% by major French investors and the other 44% by the Khedive of Egypt, the sort of hereditary prince that ruled Egypt under nominal Ottoman sovereignty. And by this time, the Ottomans had really lost any effective control over Egypt or the rest of North Africa. So really, in effect, the real powers in control of the canal and access to the canal were these private French interests and the Khedive of Egypt. In 1875, the French owners attempted to increase the tolls on the Suez Canal, but the Khedive of Egypt blocked this plan, including by threatening military force. Now, even though the tolls didn't go up, nonetheless, this caused alarm in Britain with fear that the French might try to eventually choke off the canal entirely. 
And so Benjamin Disraeli responded aggressively, and he quickly arranged a deal for the British government to borrow a large amount of money from private lenders in order to buy off the Khedive's shares of the canal. And once he accomplished this, this made Britain the only sovereign state with a large portion of the ownership, thus effectively really securing British control of the canal. And this was Disraeli's first sort of major celebrated diplomatic victory. But then even as this success was achieved very quickly, he became entangled in Balkan issues. So in that same year, in 1875, rebellions broke out in the Balkans and led eventually to a large uprising in Bulgaria, which was brutally suppressed by the Ottoman authorities with instances of massacres and wide-scale torture. And this became a scandal in Europe, the so-called Bulgarian horrors. And Disraeli at first held back from involvement in this situation, not wanting to be pulled into a distant war in the Balkans. And he went so far as to dismiss reports of the atrocities as, quote, coffeehouse babble. And in response, William Gladstone capitalized, calling aggressively for action. He wrote a widely read sensational pamphlet about the Bulgarian horrors. And Gladstone argued that Britain should take up support of the rebels, as they had done in other places like Italy, and oppose Turkish government, basically as no longer legitimate. And Gladstone believed that Britain should help to create fully independent republics in the Balkans and to end Ottoman rule in that entire region. Disraeli condemned this pamphlet, called it vindictive and ill-written, and said that of all the Bulgarian horrors, this was perhaps the greatest. But as Britain held back over 1876 and 77, Russia intervened directly. They successfully invaded the Ottoman territories and occupied a part of Bulgaria. So when this happened, fear arose in Britain that Russia might continue on and perhaps go so far as to capture Constantinople itself, and that the Ottoman Empire might fall, leaving Russia in total control of the Straits and of the whole eastern Mediterranean. So under this pressure, Disraeli decided to try to prop up the Ottomans in order to stop the Russian advance indirectly. And Disraeli proposed that the Ottomans should hand over control of their army in the Balkans to Great Britain and should allow British troops to occupy Bosnia and Bulgaria. Now, this proposal, not surprisingly, was too much for the Ottomans. And so instead, Disraeli had to turn to Russia and deal with the Russians directly. And he worked out a diplomatic bargain whereby Russia would withdraw from Bulgaria, leave it under Ottoman sovereignty, but Russia would be able to keep small pieces of territory that they had seized along the eastern and western shores of the Black Sea. So there was a small territorial advance for Russia. And in return, Britain would get control of Cyprus. And this was a crucial strategic compromise, because with Cyprus, the British now had their own secure base of naval operations in the eastern Mediterranean. And Cyprus could be added then to a long chain of British strongholds from Gibraltar to Malta to Cyprus. And just a few years later, in 1881, a rebellion broke out in Cairo against the Khedive of Egypt and against the European businessmen, magnates, diplomats, who were seen as controlling the government in Egypt. 
And in response to this rebellion, Britain moved in warships, took back control of Cairo for themselves, reinstalled the Khedive as a puppet on the throne, and established an unofficial or so-called veiled protectorate with Egypt effectively under British control. So after that point, after 1881, Britain had an almost continuous chain of bases from the Atlantic Ocean through the Mediterranean all the way to the Suez Canal, and thus by extension to India. So in the 1880s and 90s, you could say Britain seemed to be really riding high with uh, an unassailable imperial grip on their massive global domains. And in terms of foreign policy, or at least specifically foreign policy with respect to Europe, there was a period of relative calm and passivity under Salisbury. So Salisbury was prime minister from 1885 to 92, and then again from 1895 to 1902. So he was prime minister for a greater total of number, total number of years than Palmerston or Disraeli. And most of his time in the office, he also simultaneously served as foreign secretary. So he saw diplomatic and foreign affairs as central to his government. And he pursued so-called splendid isolation. He avoided making any alliance with Germany, which some of his cabinet ministers advocated as Germany rose and became more powerful. And he kept other European powers very much at arm's length, always preparing to simply defend British footholds and to avoid any entanglement in European policies. And he was quoted as saying, quote, Britain has no permanent allies, only permanent interests, end quote. So Salisbury tended to look on continental Europe with extreme wariness and suspicion as a sort of snake pit of entangling rivalries that could entrap and undermine Britain's position in the world. But then in the late 1890s, there were a series of problems for which it seems Salisbury's government was unprepared and in which Salisbury himself didn't involve himself. And these led to the beginning of the end of the Victorian system. The challenges from new rising powers, especially Germany, the United States, and even eventually Japan. And then a series of crises and internal shifts of power in Britain that disrupted the Victorian system, leading to flux and instability and to a need for reorientation abroad. So let's talk first about this series of changes and ruptures in Britain between about 1899 and 1902 that led to the end of the Victorian world. So there were four dramatic events that happened more or less simultaneously in that brief period at the start of the 20th century. Namely, the Boer War, the changeover of the monarch on the throne, the changeover of power within the foreign office, and the realignment of party politics. So firstly, as for the Boer War, which went on from 1899 to 1902. In the 1890s, the Boer republics were booming from gold and diamond mining, and this led to an enormous influx of foreign migrants into those two republics, most of them British. And these British immigrants in the Boer republics, called the Orange Free State and Transvaal, these British immigrants were not generally allowed to naturalize as citizens or to vote. And in 1899, the colonial secretary in Salisbury's government, acting on his own initiative, used this as a grounds to attack the republics and start a war. 
And this war went on for three years, but it was highly controversial and costly. It devolved into a guerrilla war, basically fighting to undermine and subdue the population of these Boer republics. And it depended on weakening and undermining the war effort support among the Boer populace. And thousands of civilian women and children were rounded up by the British and put in concentration camps. And this is often looked on as his, by historians as basically the invention of the modern concentration camp. And about 26,000 of these civilians died of disease and star- starvation. And this fueled a great deal of outrage and rising anti-British sentiment and demonstrations around the European continent, such that by the end of the war, Britain was very diplomatically isolated. Now, in the midst of this war, in January 1901, there was a changeover of the monarchy. Queen Victoria died after a record 64 years on the throne. There was a massive funeral and procession in which many Britons felt that they were saying goodbye not only to this long, familiar, long-reigning monarch, but also saying goodbye, in a sense, to the 19th century. Victoria had been an avid imperialist. She had been a supporter of the Boer War. She called Boers, quote, horrid people, cruel and overbearing, which is in line with Victoria's sort of general detestation for foreigners. And Victoria's death in 1901 reduced the pressure on the British government to prosecute this war. And it also reduced the morale of the troops on the ground. And after Victoria's death, her son came to the throne as King Edward VII. And his personality and attitudes were very different. He was more convivial, more in favor of accommodation and coexistence, especially with other European countries. And he also saw the Boer War in Africa as costly, bloody, and unnecessary. In February 1901, a number of liberal MPs in the House of Commons began to speak up aggressively against the war, including prominently the Welsh populist David Lloyd George and Henry Campbell Bannerman, a Scottish MP who had grown up in a middle-class family in Glasgow. Campbell Bannerman famously asked openly in Parliament, quote, when is a war not a war, when it is carried on by methods of barbarism in South Africa, end quote. So this was seen as another really shocking uh, affront to the government to see a British MP in the House openly calling the government barbaric. And these liberal dissenters were derisively labeled as, quote, pro-Boer, and this, this label stuck, right? <laughs> you're against a war against the Boers, you're disloyal, you must be pro-Boer. In May 1902, the Boer forces finally gave a conditional surrender. And in the Treaty of Vereeniging, they were allowed partial autonomy for these two Boer states under British sovereignty, with the British controlling their foreign and military policy. As soon as this peace was concluded and the news reached the royal court, King Edward wrote to his cousin, the Duke of Cambridge, who was the commanding general in South Africa, that he was, quote, overjoyed that the war was finally over. And thereafter, the king tried to encourage a policy of peace and coexistence, including with other imperial states. And meanwhile, as this war was going on also, there was a more quiet and subtle shift in power and politics within the foreign office. So by 1898, some diplomats and officials had been advocating for Britain 
to reopen its diplomatic relationships with the other major powers and to make strategic alliances to shore up their position, especially against the new challenges of the new rising states. And an initial idea put forward was to make a British alliance with Germany, but Lord Salisbury firmly rejected this. In 1899, the Boxer Rebellion broke out in China, and all European powers that had set up spheres of influence in China were taken by surprise by this sudden challenge from the Chinese populace. And this helped then to give the pro-alliance party in the foreign office the upper hand, as it seemed more and more that Britain would have to join together in cooperation with other major powers in order to continue to maintain its interests in the world. In 1899-1900, after the Boer War had started, Britain again found itself very isolated, without allies or sympathy. And at the same time, by 1900, Lord Salisbury himself was getting old and was in poor health, and he finally resigned from his office as foreign secretary, although he remained on still as prime minister. But at the foreign office, the new foreign secretary, Lord Lansdowne, took over, and Lansdowne felt that Britain needed allies in order to secure itself and its colonies in case of challenge. And Lansdowne tried and failed to work out an alliance with Russia, but this proved to be diplomatically too difficult. So Lansdowne turned then to the next choice, which was Japan. And in 1902, the British Foreign Office concluded a treaty of alliance with Japan at Lansdowne's private home. Also later that year, Lord Salisbury finally stepped down as prime minister. And he was replaced at his own recommendation. He was replaced by his own nephew, Arthur Balfour. So Balfour came into office as a fairly new and not widely known or trusted PM. But two years later, in 1904, the Foreign Office under Balfour concluded an informal alliance with France called the Entente Cordiale. And by this time, it was clear that Britain was on a course of building a network of alliances, much as Bismarck had done two decades earlier for Germany, But in this case, they were trying to shore up Britain's position in Europe and in the world abroad and to contain Germany, which now was the one other state in Europe with the industrial and military power to possibly face off against Britain. Okay, so we've had these changes with the Boer War, with the new monarch, the change at the Foreign Office. Well, also at the same time, there was a dramatic realignment in party politics. And this started in 1900 with the founding of the Labour Party. The Labour Party was formed by a coalition of trade unions and socialist and other leftist organizations that held a convention in London. And the basic idea of the party was to address the needs and interests of workers, such as workplace safety, wages, pensions, working hours, etc., but to do so through political channels by entering into parliament and into government, which now seemed to be possible with the reform bills and the wider enfranchisement of the middle class and the working class, and to take part actively in the setting of national policy and to address these workers' issues politically and legally, rather than through strikes, which many labor leaders saw as overly dangerous, disorderly, unpredictable. So the Labour Party enters onto the scene with a potentially significant base of support. 
And at the very same time, the controversy over the Boer War was intensifying, and it led to this split within the Liberal Party, with the critics of the war, the so-called pro-Boer faction, coming to prominence and eventually winning out and becoming the main leading faction in the Liberal Party. So as a result of the war, there was a new radicalization of the Liberal Party, especially of the front benchers under Henry Campbell Bannerman. And this group also favored social legislation to benefit workers and the poor. So there was a certain degree of shared priorities between this new radicalized Liberal Party and the Labour Party. And so in 1903, the so-called Lib Lab Alliance was created, an unofficial private alliance between the Liberal and Labour parties, whereby the two agreed not to contest the same seats and districts. But instead, in urban, largely working-class districts, only Labour candidates would run against the Conservatives, and the Liberals would stay out of their way and concentrate on middle-class and rural districts. Two years later, in 1905, the Prime Minister Arthur Balfour resigned. He had always been seen as fairly inexperienced and had little confidence in the House, and he stepped aside and was soon replaced then by the Liberal leader, Henry Campbell Bannerman, who was tapped by King Edward VII, who was a personal friend of his. The king helped him to form a temporary caretaker government under liberal leadership until another election could be held. So the following year, in 1906, elections were held, and it was a massive landslide liberal victory. Campbell Bannerman had an outright liberal majority to work with, And also, at the same time, the Labour Party, for the first time, entered into Parliament, winning 29 seats, so a significant showing for a new party. And the delegation was led by the Scottish trade union leader, Keir Hardy, who was a union organizer from Lanarkshire. So the Liberals now, with their majority and further with Labour support, had a massive mandate, and there ensued a brief period of optimism and ambition. So in this relatively radical period, Henry Campbell Bannerman was prime minister, and one of his first major acts was passing a Trades Disputes Act, which openly recognized workers' right to strike. But very quickly thereafter, his health rapidly declined, and he stepped down from office at the end of 1907. So in 1908, another liberal leader, H.H. Asquith, came to power and became prime minister. And he was perceived as from the more conservative side of the Liberal Party as compared to Campbell Bannerman or David Lloyd George. But he more or less took up and carried through the relatively radical program set by Campbell Bannerman. So Asquith was a middle-class liberal from a family of wool traders in Yorkshire in the northeast of England. And he represent East Fife in Scotland in the House. So his background, by all accounts, was very mainstream, middle class, typical of a liberal politician. And he was seen as moderate, practical, and economical. But nonetheless, he pursued populist policies, especially those championed by the radical liberal David Lloyd George from Wales. And significantly, he enacted for the first time old age pensions, similar to what we call in the United States Social Security, shortly after coming to power. He then further put forward a so-called people's budget, with extensive social welfare measures, including unemployment insurance, 
which would be paid for by estate taxes, land taxes, a graduated income tax, and taxes on alcohol, possibly as a nod to the sort of traditional Victorian moralistic background of the Liberal Party. And this people's budget was highly controversial, and it was aggressively attacked, especially by peers in the House of Lords. So David Lloyd George, another great orator and firebrand, aggressively struck back and famously quipped that, quote, a fully equipped duke costs as much to keep up as two dreadnoughts, and dukes are just as great a terror and they last longer, end quote. So this became an acrimonious political war over the people's budget. And in November 1909, the House of Commons passed the budget, but the House of Lords rejected it. And this eventually set up a confrontation, a constitutional fight over the role of the House of Lords and its ability to block fairly popular policies like this people's budget. So by 1911, Asquith was fed up with the Lords blocking of the people's budget and of any move towards reopening the question of Irish home rule. So he proposed the Parliament Act of 1911, which is a bill that held that if any policy bill was passed through two consecutive sessions of the House of Commons, it would go into law, regardless of whether the House of Lords passed it or not. And in effect, this bill demoted the House of Lords, taking away its veto power and making the House of Commons supreme over it. So naturally, this caused enormous outrage in the House of Lords, but Asquith threatened that if they did not pass this Parliament bill, basically stripping themselves of their own powers, then he would have the king grant noble titles to an enormous long list of liberal statesmen and civic leaders, thus stacking the House of Lords with liberals. And by implication then, of course, this reconstituted House of Lords would then just pass the reform bill anyway. So this led to a furious debate in August 1911 when this Parliament bill was brought before the House of Lords. One peer came to Westminster and charged into the House of Lords on horseback to try to stop the bill from being voted on. Another, in the long debate that went for hours late into the night, said that they should reject the bill because it was better that we should die out in the open than in the dark and by our own hand. But finally, the bill narrowly passed. And so the supremacy of the House of Commons was secured, and Asquith's government could proceed passing more social reforms. But even still, within a year, the government was swamped by another series of even more pressing crises, principally the fight over the Irish question, labor unrest, and women's suffrage. So before I get into those upheavals in basically the last three years before the outbreak of the First World War, there were also further foreign policy realignments and reorientations going on largely in the background and many of them even in secret. And the public and much of the cabinet too were really distracted by these domestic crises such that there wasn't a great deal of open discussion of what was happening in foreign and military affairs. So there was continuing concern over the rise of Germany. And starting by about 1902, there was a growing naval race between Germany and Great Britain, as the Germans for the first time built up a major fleet of modern warships in the North Sea, based primarily at the port of Wilhelmshaven. 
the British government did look to stay ahead of any possible challenge from the German side of the North Sea. Although it is a matter of debate among scholars exactly how alarmed the British government and high command were. So the urgency of this arms race can be exaggerated. And for many decades, it was taken as a historical fact that this arms race from Germany was a major threat to British power. It was a sign of British decline and that there was a sort of panic in Westminster to stay ahead of this German challenge. And this all, of course, can make sense in retrospect as a putative cause leading up to the Great War. But that view has largely been debunked or heavily qualified by more recent scholarship. So there was at least some degree of concern between 1902 and 1914 about this German challenge. And the proper response to it was put in the hands basically of one man. So in 1904, a British naval officer named John Jackie Fisher was appointed as Admiral of the Fleet and given the honorary title of Sea Lord. And Fisher was tasked with staying ahead of the Germans in terms of naval power, while at the same time reducing costs and cutting spending. Right? The, the liberal government was trying to rebalance and do more domestic social spending. So Fisher had a real challenge. And between 1904 and 1910, he spearheaded an aggressive modernization of the British Navy, retiring all outdated wooden ships and muzzle-loaded cannons, and replacing them with often smaller and more efficient steel-hulled battleships, modern artillery, torpedoes, and for the first time, submarines. In 1906, Fisher oversaw the launch of a new state-of-the-art, fast-moving model of battleship called the Dreadnought, which then became the model for new modern navies in the early 20th century. But nonetheless, Fisher still saw his main project as incomplete. So his real focus, it seems, was not actually on the Dreadnought, but the more important project in his view was the launch of another ship called the Invincible, which was launched in 1907. And the Invincible was more of a cruiser, and it could combine the functions of a battleship and a, an ocean-going escort ship. So it was mainly aimed at accompanying and protecting British trading ships. So at this time, although the British were monitoring and aware of the growing German fleet at Wilhelmshaven, Nonetheless, they did not, it seems, see that as a real direct threat to the security of Britain. And their main concern was not so much the North Sea, but still the traditional priority of protecting British shipping to the empire. And so Fisher and his compatriots had to balance the need to possibly defend the North Sea flank with this greater need to maintain the British empire, their main source of wealth and power. And they were able to do this with the help of new technologies like undersea cables, telegraphs, and radio links. And all in all, contrary to the traditional perceptions in the 1940s and 50s, the British did successfully keep well ahead of this German challenge. And the level of alarm over German naval buildup can be greatly exaggerated. And what is more, as I've mentioned several times, including on, in my lecture on Germany, which is for patrons on Patreon, the Germans gave up. They saw that they could not come anywhere close 
to British naval power, either in the North Sea or in the world abroad. And they scotched their own projects to create their own dreadnoughts and so on to try to match the British, such that by the end of 1911, it was clear that any prospect of Germany actually challenging Britain on the naval terrain was impossible. But nonetheless, even that being the case, Germany did build up the largest and most formidable army on the European continent. And concerns about Germany possibly tipping or overwhelming the balance of power in Europe did influence British diplomats. And the British did, for this reason largely, open up friendly communication and overtures towards their old traditional rival, which is France. So quickly, there was a rapprochement with the French. In 1904, the British, as I said, concluded an entente cordiale, a sort of non-binding, informal alliance, defensive alliance, a purely private arrangement, so as not to provoke the Germans or raise tensions, but to stand ready to possibly respond to German aggression. In 1905, Sir Edward Grey, a radical liberal MP, took office as foreign secretary. And with the approval of the Prime Minister Henry Campbell Bannerman, he furthered this policy of reopening relationships and possible alliances in Europe. And Edward Grey ultimately served in office for a total of 11 years, which is the longest continuous tenure of any British foreign secretary ever. So he, unlike these rapidly changing prime ministers, he was able to take a more long-term strategic view and specifically to pursue this broader long-term strategy of trying to contain Germany. In 1907, Gray joined Britain together with Russia in the so-called Triple Entente. So now Britain, France, and Russia all unofficially agreed to defend and support one another in case of conflict with Germany. And this entry into the Triple Entente was secretly negotiated by Gray without even the knowledge of the rest of the cabinet, and its terms were kept secret from the public. So this was not at all like what we tend to think of as an alliance, an open, formal, public commitment between two nations. It was very much a diplomatic arrangement. In 1911, Gray further reaffirmed Britain's alliance with Japan and strengthened it as a means of trying to keep the Germans out of possible influence in the Pacific, where they were starting to send expeditionary forces and set up small colonies. So by the end of 1911, one could see that Britain left far behind this policy of splendid isolation and was now trying to very carefully manage their presence in this interlocking, not only European, but now global alliance system. But also after 1911, the government and the cabinet was increasingly engulfed in disputes over domestic social questions. So let's talk a little bit about this series of crises. They included, most importantly, the fights over women's suffrage, labor power, and Irish home rule. And all of these disputes not only divided the country, as various controversies and scandals had before, but they led in many cases to actual violence and to the breakdown of the boundaries of the liberal social order and of law and order itself. 
And it happens that the American historian George Dangerfield wrote about this period, these last few years before 1914, in his book, The Strange Death of Liberal England, which is brilliantly written and is possibly my favorite nonfiction book that I've ever read. And he published that book in 1935. And he argues that this period from about 1910 to 14 has been commonly misunderstood and was misunderstood in the 30s or grievously misrepresented. So at that time in the interwar period after World War I, the idea had widely taken hold that the early 1910s were the last years of the Victorian liberal order, which had then been destroyed by the war, thus leading to this period of anomie, division, disorder, disillusionment in the 1920s and 30s. But Dangerfield in The Strange Death of Liberal England argues that it was really more the opposite and that, in fact, the British social order was already imploding under its own inner conflicts. And if anything, the war served to preserve it for a few years longer, sort of created an artificial national unity that staved off what appeared to be the imminent collapse of British Victorian order in the 1910s. Now, since that time, this book, of course, is very old, but since that time, some scholars have even argued that British leaders actually welcomed the war in 1914 as a distraction from these internal fights within British society. Now, this argument is more contentious and questionable, but nonetheless, Dangerfield's arguments about the deep social division and upheaval of the 1910s is pretty incontrovertible and I believe is widely accepted among scholars. Okay, so let's talk about these three main controversies that triggered such deep acrimony and conflict and even violence in Britain in those last few years before the war. So firstly, I'll talk about Irish home rule. So the Liberal Party lost some of their seats in the House of Commons in 1910. And therefore, much like Gladstone's government in the 1880s, once again, the liberals needed Irish votes in order to stay in government. So Asquith negotiated a deal with the Irish nationalists in Parliament. And in April 1912, he introduced a bill that would grant home rule to Ireland. Now, the Protestant Irish MPs who opposed home rule or independence adamantly denounced this. And they formed a so-called unionist faction to stand aggressively against this move towards home rule. And these Protestant Irish unionists warned that if power was devolved to an Irish council in Dublin, the Protestants in Ireland would be subject to Catholic domination or what they called Rome rule. So this was sort of the, the slogan that home rule means Rome rule. And in the later months of 1912, Ulster volunteers, basically armed militias of citizens in the northeastern county of Ireland called Ulster, began to form a, a broad paramilitary group called the Ulster Volunteers. And in response, Catholic nationalists in mainly the south of Ireland formed the Irish Volunteer Army. And basically, an arms race ensued, with supporters and sympathizers in different parts of Ireland, Britain, and Europe smuggling money and weapons to these two opposing groups. 
1914, the Ulster Volunteers received some open rhetorical support from Tory MPs in Parliament, and some of them even helped to move money and arms into Ulster. So this deep acrimonious divide split not only Ireland, but also high society and the ruling class in Great Britain, with both sides seeing the other as fundamentally disloyal and traitorous to the crown. And not surprisingly, under these conditions, Parliament was deadlocked and could not function, with both sides entertaining the idea of resort to simple force. And civil war actually seemed very possible, especially in the early months of 1914. So in May of that year, a Home Rule bill was passed through the House of Commons, but the Lords delayed its implementation, and some of them actually encouraged British army units in Ireland to mutiny rather than agree to carry out any Home Rule Act. So the country seemed very much on the brink of civil war in the spring of 1914. And George Dangerfield actually writes about this moment in a very interesting and evocative passage in Strange Death of Liberal England. And he writes, quote, In the spectacle of a helpless parliament, there is something frightening and something funny. It is like a South American football game, which breaks up because the spectators have begun to burn the stands. And Parliament in May 1914 was quite helpless. Its members, liberal and conservative, glared at one another with the concentrated venom of enemies who discover, too late, that they have been fighting about nothing at all. The foolish pretense of responsibility, which kept them still talking in their narrow chamber, still passing with pointless diligence through the division lobbies, brought with it nothing but hatred. Beyond their walls, careless of their deliberations, England settled her own affairs as best she could. The violent reality outside left a vicious unreality within. The two parties were no longer on speaking terms. Their leaders communicated with one another only through liaison officers. Tory treason and liberal weakness had worked themselves out at last. The battle raged furiously through London, where people dined against each other in the deadliest fashion and where drawing room met drawing room in mortal combat. This singular warfare, with its accompanying rattle of cutlery and popping of wine corks, grew in intensity as the season advanced. Entrenched behind acres of flowers and miles of table linen, hostesses gave battle. Rival orchestras moaned and thundered through the nights. On neutral ground, there was constant exchange of snubs and shrugs and cuts direct. End quote. So this passage is very funny, right? And, and Dangerfield is trying to bring out the absurdity. But there's also something intentionally very ominous about his wording, right? Talking about these exchanges on neutral ground and hostesses being entrenched behind their table linens. He's clearly using terms evoking the battlefields of World War I. And I think in this way is, in an oblique way, is suggesting a connection, right? A link between... Britain on the precipice of civil war in the months, the early months of 1914, just a matter of weeks before this war did actually break out and lead to real warfare, right? And it brings up this idea that again has been suggested and debated through the years that the domestic turmoil within British society actually contributed then to the decision to involve 
Britain in this catastrophic war. But as I said, that's not all that was tearing Britain apart either. Secondly, there was also the militant labor movement. So from 1910 to 14, there was an enormous wave of strikes, which came to be called the Great Unrest. There were at least 3,000 total strikes around Britain and Ireland, and 1,200 just in 1913 alone. And not only were they numerous, but these actions included unprecedented broad actions, such as the Liverpool transport strike, which more or less shut down the city of Liverpool, and the national coal strike, which basically shut down the largest and most basic uh, energy source in Britain. And it seems that the motivating and defining ideas of these labor actions were also very different from earlier strikes. They were not driven so much by desperation and the need for basic survival. There was some degree of broad prosperity and a rising standard of living in the early 1900s. But rather, these strikes were defined more by a sense of political injustice, the idea that workers were not getting a great enough share of the wealth that they were producing, that they did not have enough of a voice in society. And many of the strikers were influenced by anarchical syndicalism, which was gaining more of an audience in Great Britain. And we think of Britain as sort of splendidly isolated, right, from the radicalism of the continent, radical democracy, anarchism, Marxism. But in fact, there was a real uh, anarcho-syndicalist strain in Britain in these years. And many of the leaders of the workers believed that the workers themselves should own and run the industries, that there should be an abolition of private property in some sense. And it also was part, it seems, of a broader social revolt against Victorian norms. And you can see this in certain incidents, such as in the Tony Pandy riots that broke out and spread very spontaneously in South Wales. Workers rioted, smashed windows, fought with police, and in some instances, village women in these mining towns ran through the streets naked as just kind of an expression of defiance. And you can see this new radicalism in the labor movement and this rejection of kind of Victorian social convention as linking this movement then also to the women's suffrage movement, which by this time was no longer just about the vote, but was about a broad rebellion against gender and class norms. And the movement for votes for women had been building gradually since the 1880s. And some suffrage campaigners saw a degree of hope when the radical liberal government came into office after the election of 1906. But the Prime Minister Henry Campbell Bannerman dragged his feet and never took a clear stand in favor of women's suffrage. And when he was replaced then by Asquith, who took office in 1908, Asquith actively opposed women's suffrage on the grounds that he feared that newly enfranchised women voters would favor the conservatives. So three campaigners for suffrage were arrested when trying to force their way into the offices and get a meeting with the Prime Minister Asquith. And these three campaigners chose to go to jail rather than make a plea deal according to which they would agree to stop campaigning for women's suffrage. And after this impasse, the movement became increasingly radicalized, as many campaigners gave up on the idea of gaining the vote through peaceful protest and political action. 
Now, many of you may know that early on, especially in the 19th century, the main sort of leader and spokesperson of this movement was Emmeline Pankhurst, and that after 1900, she increasingly passed leadership of the movement to her elder daughter, Christabel. So they were the two sort of icons, longstanding icons of the movement. But as the movement radicalized, especially in the course of 1911 to 14, a new leader emerged in the person of Sylvia Pankhurst, the younger Pankhurst daughter. And it seems that the family was split over the main focus and goals of the movement. Should it be focused just on votes for women and basically avoid taking positions on other controversial issues? Or should the movement focus more on poverty and workers' rights as being agitated and put forward by this militant labor movement? And Sylvia Pankhurst argued that material and economic issues were actually more urgent for most women, since most women in Britain were poor, working class, or lower middle class, and that these were actually more urgent for most women than the purely political right of suffrage. And it seems that this increasingly militant movement more and more fell under the sway of Sylvia Pankhurst and was more and more disavowed by Emmeline and Christabel. Now, in 1912, Prime Minister Asquith finally did allow a suffrage bill to be brought forth in the House of Commons, and he made it a free vote in the sense that he would not tell liberal MPs how to vote. It would be up to their conscience. But before it could be passed, the Speaker of the House tossed the bill out on technical procedural grounds. So after that point, militant suffragettes launched a massive unrelenting, violent campaign of protest involving arson, bombings, sabotage, and vandalism. These militant suffragettes invented the letter bomb and the shrapnel-loaded IED. Several of them planted bombs that exploded in cabinet ministers' homes. One of them threw a hatchet at the prime minister, and another committed suicide during a horse race by hurling herself in front of the king's horse as it ran by on the racetrack. At least four people were killed by this violent campaign, and the arrested campaigners often went on hunger strikes in prison or while protesting and chaining themselves in front of government buildings. In the spring of 1914, jails around London were filling up with female militants on hunger strike. Sylvia Pankhurst at the same time chained herself in front of the Houses of Parliament and went on a hunger strike for weeks. By early June, she was near death, lying on her back on the steps of the Houses of Parliament, unable to stand or sit up. Finally, on June 11th, the House of Commons, meeting in their chambers in Westminster, reluctantly held a debate on what to do about Sylvia Pankhurst and the other hunger-striking women in prison. One MP named McKenna proposed four possible responses. Namely, these four options were, one, to let the prisoners die, two, to deport them, three, to treat them as lunatics, or four, to give them the vote. Now, McKenna immediately assured his audience that number four, giving them the vote, was clearly not the right course of action and that something else had to be done. And just as he was getting towards the end of his speech, the MPs heard a loud boom like thunder coming from nearby. And it turned out that next door in Westminster Abbey, a bomb had gone off, damaging the coronation chair and putting a large dent in the chapel of Edward the Confessor. 
but only narrowly missed a group of visitors who had just left the chapel. Now, this incident, which seemed to sort of put a capstone on the impossibility of handling this women's rebellion, this happened on June 11th, just 17 days before the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. And so in retrospect, it is not unreasonable to ask whether the diplomatic fracas that ensued from that assassination provided Asquith's cabinet with a welcome distraction from these seemingly impossible domestic conflicts. But the evidence that has been examined shows that the British government was highly resistant to getting involved in the crisis on the continent and never really seriously entertained the idea of going to war until news came in the first days of August of the German invasion of Belgium and of the atrocities committed by German forces in Belgium. And it seems that many ministers and even more so liberal MPs in Parliament reacted with shock and incredulity. And only then did the government begin to prepare to go to war. And on the evening of August 3rd, just the night before Britain's declaration of war, the Foreign Secretary Edward Gray famously said to a newspaper editor in his office, quote, The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. End quote. So as I have said before, I expect that soon I'll post a lecture examining Japan and then discuss military and diplomatic affairs leading up to the actual outbreak of war in 1914. And also, in the meantime, I've been working on my prospective video series analyzing the movie Red, White, and Royal Blue, including from the perspective of what it says about royal history and politics. And lastly, this lecture was brought to you by the letter P, so I would now like to thank my current active patrons whose names begin with P. Padrig Okahasek, Pam Fox, Pamela Witherspoon, Patrick, another Patrick, Patrick Gordon, Paul Franz, Paul is east of the Pecos, Paul Lynch, Pedro Borges de Araujo, Peter Goldstein, Peter Hofmeister, Platon, and Psychic Data. Thank you.